0: It's time to be mindful and take a more bee centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hello, family, bonjour. Uh, welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I'm your host, Natalie B. And today we're gonna talk about the quality of bees that you keep, um, how to increase your chances of success when starting or continuing in beekeeping. And that obviously goes through the kind of bees that you're gonna keep. So let's talk about that in a little bit more details. So first it's important to remember that colonies that are headed by queens that are local to the environment will do significantly better I think that the average for colonies with local queens um, to survive um, was 80 80 to 100 days longer than those with non-local queen. And the theory goes, it's because the protein levels needed for local adaptations are different based on the geographical location. Meaning bees that are in more windy environments uh, will have developed proteins that are, for example, um, strengthening their flying uh, muscles. Some theories imply that maybe they have better, more adapted foraging skills. And and all that basically um, mean that the colonies are stronger, they have more uh, bees and they are more able to get the resources that they need before the winter. So in effect, local colonies are stronger because they have more population and are better adapted to the local environment. So when, when purchasing bees or sourcing bees from local stock, whether it be swarms or cutouts or removals in all cases you're always going to be better off with local queens which is why we always tell people avoid buying queens that are that have been imported from other areas other states in the united states and just kind of keep that in mind as your first step to better colonies and better queens Another aspect to keep in mind when selecting bees, whether you source them from the local environment or you purchase them, is you want to make sure that those queens are well fed and well raised. I talked about before um, grafted queens versus naturally natural swarm cells, which are better fed and, and from the get-go they're fed that royal jelly that the worker bees don't necessarily get initially. They get worker uh, jelly instead of royal jelly. So that's important to know as well, your swarm cell types of queens are going to be better fed, they're going to be fatter, they're going to be uh, more able to come back uh, mated, and they're going to be better mated because they will have had more opportunities to mate with more drones. And we're going to talk about a little bit uh, about that, um, the implications of being able to mate with more local drones. So again, today we're talking about all this because we want to make sure you understand If you're going to go, especially uh, natural beekeeping, um, it's important to really select the right kind of queens for your colonies. Because with beekeeping, especially more than any other agricultural activity, I think that um, with bees, you get what you pay for or you get what you ask for. Meaning you should really go for the highest quality of queens if you want the highest chances of success. Uh, in an environment that's quite challenging for the bees with the current issues on the viral mites and the viruses that they transmit. So you want the colonies to be best prepared when it comes to that. So that goes through some of that local genetics I was talking about, but there's other aspects. And in particular, I wanted to talk today about the various levels of immunity exhibited by a honeybee colony as a superorganism, because it does matter Um, and does directly influence their chances of survival. So today we're gonna talk more specifically about things like polyandry, um, the mating with several drones, task allocation, you know, that temporal polyethism, the different ages and different tasks the bees perform, Uh, As also another way to help with the uh, level of immunity in the colony, the use of antimicrobial compounds, as well as the hygienic behaviors. And that's a big one that uh, beekeepers talk about a whole lot. Things going from uncapping, recapping, hygienic behavior or virus sensitive hygiene, social immunity, propolis, ankle biting, bird breaks, grooming, polyandry, all that stuff that we just kind of uh, lump into the various levels of immunity. Uh, exhibited by honeybee colony as a superorganism, so let's dive in, in a little bit of that in more detail, so you better understand what matters when selecting uh, your queens for for success, basically. So let's start first with hygienic behavior uh, in honeybees, which really is a heritable genetic trait. It's usually recessive, which means it must be persistently selected which tends to actually lead to some issues in particular in breeding. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, that's a heritable genetic trait by the worker cohorts, the individual honeybees, that confers... The a colony level wide a colony level <laughs> resistance against various brood diseases. So how does it work? Well, basically, workers displaying hygienic behavior will detect uh, not only detect but also remove dead or diseased brood from uh, capped cells, which really contributes to total social immunity as a group. So in effect, it doesn't directly protect sick sick individuals, but it protects the colony as a whole through the ability of each of those individuals to detect and remove that dead, uh, diseased, or even parasitized brood before they reach the infectious stage. And there's really three levels of hygienic behavior in this case. The first one being detection, uh, being able to tell there's an issue with the brood, usually under the cappings. Uh, Then the second level is actual uncapping of that brood to kind of check it out and potentially um, expose the brood to, um, you know, the atmosphere, uh, which might have an impact, a negative impact directly on some of the issues, including the reproduction of the varamomides. And the third level is the removal of either diseased or dead uh, brood altogether out of the colony. So in the examples of the vera-sensitive VSH colonies, they have a lower threshold of detection for that kind of parasitized brood so that they are more efficient at removing the mites or turning off their reproduction cycles than other colonies and more efficient at removing any kind of diseased brood or dead brood out of the colony. And that's that undertaking that really makes a difference in the basically sanitation practices of the of the bees, of the superorganism, and helps protect them from uh, infestation and or uh, spread of disease. So how is that level of hygienic behavior measured in an objective way? Well, it's usually using that um, that famous free-skilled brood assay, where the beekeeper testing the colony for um, hygienic behavior will use um, as uh, like a cookie cutter type of um, tube, put it against a capped brood and pour liquid nitrogen to actually kill the brood under the capping. Then put that uh, comb back into the colony and come back in a couple of days to and count or observe how many of the de- dead brood has been um, undertaken, basically taken out of the colony and cleaned out of the cells. So by keeping the brood's nest clean, And free of diseased or dead brood, it really improves the sanitation of the nursery that the brood's nest is, meaning that it allows for um, decrease in um, spread of disease and problems, which keeps the colony in the end stronger by sacrificing a few of the individuals for the benefit of the group as a whole. So another aspect of that hygienic behavior is the phenomenon of um, uncapping and recapping bird cells, where bees that have that trait will go and smell and detect issues, in particular varomite reproduction into the cells, and they'll go and uncap the cells in question and potentially even leaving them open uh, for the rest of the duration of the pupation, Or potentially recap them once the issue has been taken care of, and they'll go. Some of them um, have that trait so strongly that they'll keep going in and cap, recap, and cap, recap. Keep on checking on that brood, looking under the hood to make sure that everything's fine, and that kind of actually leads to direct decrease in reproduction of the mites when the foundress mites enters the cell. And starts laying her eggs. Nothing necessarily happens, but as soon as the um, proto nymphs, the the baby mites, are born, they must be um, emitting some kind of odor. I mean, the mechanisms are not really understood, but the bees are able to detect that. Open up and cap that uh, cell, uh, that brood cell, and um, in doing so, the 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 baby mites. Um, do not make it into adulthood, do not mate and do not get out with the bee as it emerges. So that kind of really helps controlling the level of infestation when the life cycle is interrupted that, that much. The The foundress mite is not impacted. She has her sclerotic pla- pla- plaques. Uh, she's basically hardened body. The babies don't make it because they're not ready for the outside environment and they can only survive at this point, into a capped cell. Some other of the hygienic behaviors that the superorganism can display through their individual cohorts of bees would be things like um, ankle biting. There was a a race of bees developed in Purdue, I believe, that was basically um, ripping out legs and body parts of the mites, preventing them from being mobile and they would fall to the ground of the hive and that would interrupt that that, uh, life cycle. So that ankle biting um, trait was very helpful in hygienic behavior. (laughs) In other ways bees can achieve hygienic behavior is through grooming, grooming each other, making those mites fall off. And um, if that's combined with other techniques where the mites cannot get back up into the colony, that helps decreasing the numbers of mites that can reproduce their capped brood cells. So while those traits are highly desirable, obviously, the problem when trying to breed for uh, specific traits is that it generally leads to inbreeding depression and because those traits are actually recessive. So it takes both the genes of the queen mother and the drones to activate those traits. Um, because they're not dominant, they're recessive. So any such efforts that are actually breeding for those traits without keeping in mind the genetic diversity um, is doomed to fail in the long term, because as soon as the queens um, reproduce and the colonies swarm, you're losing those traits unless you have drones in the area that are carrying the same recessive genes and the mix of um, genes end up allowing them to express themselves. So it kind of goes a little bit against one of the strongest mechanisms that the superorganism has to increase their level of immunity, which is really polyandry, and and basically um, hybrid vigor. You want the colony to have the most possible mating with strong queens that have genetic diversity. To lead to hybrid vigor, and we're going to talk about that. But um, Keith Delaplane actually talks about that in details, and and it's a fascinating subject that I encourage all of you to look into. You really want um, hybrid vigor, which is uh, uh, led by which is triggered by um, genetic diversity, and what you don't want is. Um, Inbreeding depression, which is um, coming out of mostly inbreeding um, and and selecting for traits instead of against specific ones, you want to keep that diversity um, that that roulette go and and act in your favor to increase increase the various levels of immunity in your superorganism in your colonies. That's why I usually try to breed out traits that I do not want instead of breeding in traits that I do want. In the end, a colony of survivor stock that has been um, successful on its own will develop its own strategies to best um, minimize the mite stress and all other disease stressors. Um, and, And we need to trust our bees with that process rather than trying to breed for specific traits, which in the end are usually recessive and will disappear really quickly. And if not, they might lead to inbreeding depression. So all those designer queens, um, we don't personally uh, waste our money on that kind of stuff. You know, we, we will go always with local survivor stock. So hygienic behavior is one type of defense that the superorganism can display In trying to keep away from pests and pathogens, pests and diseases. And there's a continuum of types of defenses that the superorganism can use from anywhere, defenses that are anywhere from um, prophylactic, that are constantly present in the background, they're called constitutive defenses, all the way to uh, inducible defenses, which are the ones that are only activated when they're needed and the colony uses a variety of defences along those um constitutive to inducible <laughs> spectrum which always has ba- balancing uh, is always balancing costs with benefit because each solution has its own cost obviously it requires a certain level of energy or sacrifice so we talked about hygienic behaviour but let's talk let's go back a little bit and talk about uh, some of the more constitutive or constant preventative prophylactic uh, defenses that the colony um, can do naturally to help themselves. And the first and most important one we touched to it uh, a little bit is polyandry. So even though it's initiated and achieved at the individual le- level, it actually plays a major role in social immunity. And the more mated a queen is, the more genetic diversity her progeny will display through different patrilines or subfamilies or sister cohorts or half sister cohorts. And that's that aspect that provides that hybrid vigor at the colony level I was talking about. So, colonies which have the highest, um, the queen that are the best mated with the most amount of different types of drones will have. Uh, higher levels of genetic diversity. Uh, and, and what that translates into is health healthier gut microbiota. They have a better gut, which is linked to their immune system. They have, and by consequence, higher immunocompetence at the larval, but also at the adult level. And they do that through basically higher resistance to disease and lower levels of infection. So um, the other aspect of that, uh, they will have higher foraging efficiency and productivity and overall better survival rates. So they're in effect better able to combat exposure to multiple diseases and parasites as well as different strains of a single uh, disease. And so they're better prepared, they're more armed with more tools and in their tool bag against all those uh, stressors that the pests and the diseases are. And that's why it's so important. That's where selecting good bees um, starts with uh, how well-mated your queen is and how locally-mated she is. And you have to be careful because with bee breeders, queen breeders, there's a tendency to have a lot of inbreeding. So that matters. And what is very often... Taken for a sign of mite infestation or problems with disease, which is that spotty brood pattern that we are learning, we learn to um, uh, identify. Well, very often that's actually more a sign of inbreeding depression than uh, than really an issue with the pests and pathogens. So that's something that you want to really keep in mind. Uh, to us, the viral mites and and the problems that the, the viruses that they transmit are just a symptom of an underlying problem with your queen and um, her uh, being inbred or poorly mated or poor quality. So while I'm on the queen um, subject, I would also remind you that if you get treated queens, they're not survivor stock and you get what you pay for, they're not gonna be as able to defend themselves against pests and pathogens. especially if you're intending on being a natural beekeeper and not using treatments, just stay away from those treated queens. So one of the questions I usually tell our students to ask is when purchasing queens, just ask, what do you treat your bees with? And they'll be very happy to tell you if they treat what they're treating with. And if they don't treat, then they will be very happy to tell you what they're not that they're not treating so that kind of, a, a, to me, that whole strategy that some of the commercial beekeepers uh, are, are using when they're laughing at treatment-free beekeepers and and saying, basically, you know, they're good return customers because their bees keep dying. To me, that's not the smartest marketing strategy in the world because you're bragging that you're selling poor quality bees to your customers, which means they have to keep coming back to you. I stay away from breeders that, sell treated bees, period. Because otherwise, I'm, yes, they're cheaper, but I'm getting what I pay for and I'm really taking a high risk on, um, for my beekeeping uh, chances of success. I, and I just don't want to buy ever treated bees. They're, to me, they're completely inferior bees. And I'd rather start with local survivor stock. So another strategy that um, the the superorganism can adapt very efficiently, and that's a little bit more uh, activated when needed and a little bit less prophylactic than polyandry, is basically task allocation that uh, temporal polyethism, which is when uh, honeybees perform different tasks at different ages, and that's basically an age-based division of labor among individuals, which has the benefit to also help. Uh, fend pests and pathogens at the colony level, because the younger the bee, the more she works inside with brood, as soon as they emerge, the worker bees are nurses, they take care of the babies, the, the, the larvae, and, and the queen is the one laying the eggs, so they stay in the center of the brood's nest and are shielded from outside uh, stressors of pests and pathogens. So that's a very clever way for them to protect the 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 brood from contamination and and pressure from those stressors and then the more she is um uh growing and maturing uh and she progresses to forage foraging related tasks and uh she's exposed to you know what the, the dehydration of nectar and the processing of um propolis and, and compounds coming in. That exposes her a little bit more to the outside and, and a little bit more to uh, some of the issues related with the contamination outside. And the more she progresses to those, uh, she transitions to that level of interaction with the outside world, the less she starts interacting with the younger bees and the queen. So there's, a, in effect, a buffering of the queen and the brood from the more high-risk exposure individuals. Uh, which is combined with the compartmentalization of the different tasks and how that whole process basically naturally helps limiting disease transmission throughout the colony. And I think that's a very clever way for the bees, the superorganism, to protect themselves. And that's one of those uh, very successful strategies that they're using naturally to achieve those results. So going a little bit further on the activated interstitial defenses that are activated only when they're needed, um, let's talk about a subject that's not often talked about, that the superorganism uh, engages in. It's the use of antimicrobial compounds. And basically, there's two types of compounds honeybees use to increase immunity at the individual, but also at the colony level, self-produced and collected. So let's talk about self-produced first. Um, The honeybees um, will have on their cuticle, which is their outside, you know, basically the skin of the bee. It's not skin, but uh, the cuticle is the outer shell of the honeybees. And they have venom peptides uh, spread on their body as well as on the comb. So there's a protection at the individual level, but also at the social level, at the colony level. And those venom peptides have very strong antimicrobial properties. So that's one of the strategies they're using. The other one is they're gonna use antimicrobial peptides in the larval diet, in the the worker jelly, and the uh, rural jelly, and and also in honey to reduce colony infection. So they'll basically seed their own food for the brood and for the adults with antimicrobial peptides to protect themselves. Another strategy is the individual secretion of um, a compound called glucose oxidize, which is an enzyme with antiseptic properties, uh, which compounded at the, so- the colony level provides colony immunity and at much less cost than the individual level because it's compounded uh, o- over the entire nest. And then the last strategy of self-produced antimicrobial compounds is the famous triophylaxis, and the consumption of hive products to inoculate all the individuals, the microbiota for pathogen resistance at the colony level. So they're sharing their their microbes through that trophallaxis, and and that provides social immunity for the entire colony. So I think that's those strategies are super clever, um, and they're they're very effective in protecting the colony, and that's why. I always say you don't want to interfere with some of those strategies um, by feeding them different types of uh, things that might interfere with those uh, those antimicrobial compounds that they're ingesting and spreading across the hive. Uh, for example, those essential essential oils that we put sometimes in sugar syrup uh, tend to really interfere with the microbiome uh, of the gut of the bee. And that can lead to um, uh, basically the suppression of those protections at the colony level. So we want to be very mindful (laughs) of that kind of things. So out of those antimicrobial compounds, we talked about the self-produced one. Let's talk about the collected ones, the ones that the bees don't make but bring into the nest. And foragers harvest uh, basically defensive plant-based compounds that allow the colony to self-medicate. And that's a fascinating subject to me. Um, they'll use, obviously, things like propolis, which is made out of resins they're collecting. And that propolis actually, believe it or not, has volatile chemical components. And it's kind of misted inside the bird's nests and provides a certain level of protection. Uh, the individuals basically line the inside of the nest with it to create a protective atmosphere at the colony level. uh, And that helps individuals in their fight to protect against brood pathogens in particular, especially American fowl brood and shark brood. And they also help increasing both both brood production and adult life expectancy, expectancy, the length of time that an adult bee will live. The way that works is individual foragers uh, increase their collection of propolis when more is needed to boost the immune function, as it is the case with the presence of varroa infestation and deformed wing virus. And so those levels of uh, propolis and uh, chemical, volatile chemical compounds will fluctuate, fluctuate based on the needs of the colony. And that's another aspect of why it's so important to try to protect those brood nests from being exposed and open um, because those volatile compounds will tend tend to escape the brood's nest if you crack open a hive and leave it open for too long, which is where I think that the horizontal tupper hives have a big advantage over the Langstroth vertical hives and even the long strength lengthstrass um uh horizontal halves because the level of exposure of the bird's nest is almost, you know, when you're not doing something specific, it's almost null because you stop right at the edge of it, right past the honey, um, storage and you kind of check what your bird, um, pattern looks like and you're good to go. You don't go into the bird's nest and you don't expose it. And even if you did, you would open maybe like just a bar at a time and have very little bit of the bird's nest exposed at a time. And I think it does matter in the way Uh, those volatile compounds are helping because when you go in as a Langstroth uh, colony and you crack open the entire box and move it to the side to go to the lower levels, you're really letting all those chemical compounds, um, propolis-based chemical compounds, just escape the hive along with the uh, humidity levels and the temperature controls that the bees had very carefully uh, worked towards maintaining. So that's something to keep in mind in your choice of hive. And then another type of uh, antimicrobial compounds that bees collect are the ones found in actual nectar and some of them in pollen. But in nectar, you find things like alkaloids that play a role as well in the social immunity of the colony. So that all that um, taken together really helps a colony um, maintaining a healthy bird's nest. Another strategy that's a little bit more um, activated when needed uh, is the self-removal. It's called also altruistic suicide. It is when sick individuals know they're sick and they remove themselves um, uh, spontaneously from the colony and they choose not to return. Another way um, that bees um, produce self-removal is when Symptomatic adult bees are also actively removed by bees, by other bees that are performing hygienic behavior. So it can be self-induced or it could be um, triggered by uh, hygienic bees. Okay, so now let's talk about some of the most um, activated when needed strategies that colonies will display when there's issues with um, disease and pests. And that's the induced colony-level response of either social fever or absconding. And those are really, really done only as an unneeded basis. And colonies uh, as a whole will will, uh, adopt those strategies to either increase the bird's nest temperature slightly so that they can inhibit the development of chalk brood, for for example, in infected larvae. That's called uh, social fever when they raise that temperature. Or they've been known also to leave the entire nest behind, including brood and food, and restart in a new disease-free hive. And that's the phenomenon that a lot of uh, uh, colonies experience, especially in the fall, which is absconding, where you're going to find all your bees gone, your queen gone, and you might still have some capped brood, emerging brood coming out, and the food might still be there, but there's no more bees protecting anything, and the queen is gone along with them. So that's a really drastic behavior, and it's really a last resort that the colony will um, come to when it's plagued by high levels of pests and pathogens. So abscondition can happen both when you have those high levels of pests and pathogens, but also I wanted wanted to uh, um, mention the caveat that it also happens when um, you don't have a lot of food and those bees are starving, and sometimes they'll abandon the nest in search of better forage. Um, as a desperate last-ditch effort before the winter comes to find better forage. So it can be either because of disease or because of nutrition. So all that to say, and this is the conclusion of this segment today, is that we really should understand better the strategies that bees are able to display and adopt to minimize um, pests and pathogens, including the mite stress, Uh, on their colonies, whether at the individual bee level or at the social or superorganism level, at the colony level. And we really need to learn how to understand and trust those processes and foster those processes by um, letting the bees find those strategies and implement them for better chances of success, because that's really where they're gonna be the most successful and, treating them with chemicals is not helping them develop those strategies so that's something i really wanted to kind of uh, put in perspective here so it all goes back to um let your bees be strong find your you know your strong stock and your strong genetics and foster those and and whatever stock is not as strong and not so resilient on their own there's nothing there to say that we need to keep all colonies alive. There are some bees that are bad. That's called natural selection. Those are naturally going to die, and I'm um, kind of encourage every single one of us to not try to unnecessarily keep those bees alive by treating them. Uh, I've heard people say, "Well, those are the bees. I want to keep my bee. I want to raise my own genetics. I want to really start my own genetics." Well, that should start by not uh, fostering and and propagating weak genetics by maintaining them on life support so that they can reproduce. If they can't reproduce on their own and they're not gonna do well without a sustained level of medication, then what's even the point of keeping them alive? And the flip side of it is again, uh, really seek out the genetics that are gonna be the most successful. And that goes through local genetics. Survivor genetics and the only survivor genetics are the non-treated genetics, the ones that are doing it on their own without being medicated. And if you're going to have to buy bees to get started, which I understand when, you, when you're when you just getting started, that's kind of hard to not do. Um, I would suggest that you really look into local survivor stock, not treated stock from out of state. You're always going to have better chance with your local... Uh, non-treated bees than you will with treated bees from out-of-state. So with that in mind, um, it all comes back to the queen, basically. Okay, so let's talk now about some seasonal uh, practical applications of the information we discussed and consider that in Central Texas, where in the fall and working on winter readiness, And it's not always the case everywhere in the world, right? Obviously, hello, Australia. You guys are more uh, in the spring, uh, opposite seasons as Central Texas. So keep that in mind. But with that being said, um, you have three strategies that you can adopt if you have struggling colonies in the fall and getting them ready um, for winter. Uh, The first one would be, um, well, the first thing you need to do is evaluate your colonies. Make sure they have enough food and brood uh, for and the numbers for overwintering. And I would say that with anywhere from five to eight um, combs or bars of brood and food, that would be around your minimum, depending on the temperatures in the winter. Uh, Keep in mind that when you have warmer winters, your bees stay active more, and they'll go through, excuse me, (coughs) through their resources, resources. Uh, a lot faster. So that's something to keep in mind and adjust accordingly uh, how much food you're leaving in the hive. But I would say a minimum of one-to-one brood to one bird food. And it's actually better to leave two, bo- two food for one brood uh, or anywhere in between will help. If you don't have that currently, there's, um, there's a couple things that you can do. You can either equalize your colonies by taking some of the resources from much stronger colonies and donate that to the weaker colonies to boost them up and and get them uh, the numbers and the food that they need to overwinter successfully. Keeping in mind that whenever you rob uh, Peter to pay Paul, Uh, Peter is counting, was counting anyway on those resources and especially when it comes to brood and so you don't want to do that too much, you don't want to take out too much of your strong colonies because then you're creating a a gap in the age of the bees that are coming out and some of them will have to revert back to being nurse bees earlier or some of them will have to go and, and be forages earlier if you do that too much and that's something to keep in mind, you don't want to do that too much. But equalizing is a good strategy if you have enough colonies to share. And, and if you have 20 Peters and 10 Pauls, that's OK. You can take one, one comb from each of the Peters and give it to Paul. Uh, that works. If you have just a few colonies, don't, don't overtax your strong colonies just to save some weaker colonies. So another way to get them enough food before the winter anyway is to provide emergency feeding if they don't have enough. Uh, We don't recommend feeding on a regular basis and certainly not pollen uh, ever unless it's natural pollen. But even then, you're kind of tricking them into rearing brood when they shouldn't be. But um emergency feeding of simple sugar syrup uh, can help them pack enough food to survive the winter. So if you're really bent over uh, keeping those in there strong enough, uh, otherwise, then that's something I would consider. But in the end, there's some colonies that are not strong enough. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough brood. They're not worth saving. Uh, and what I would say in that case is you should consider combining them and giving the bees to stronger colonies, uh, getting rid of the, the queen, that's probably weaker genetics, and, and just keeping the, the queen from the strong colony along. So you can merge those uh, by creating some confusion, smoking, and and putting the frames, alternating one donor, one, um, one existing, one donor, one existing, and just kind of creating that confusion so that they... they um, the transition is um, smoother, and they don't have to fight because they'll they'll learn to know each other through trophallaxis, basically through feeding. the The colony stomach is what uh, that's how they identify themselves, and so you can do it that way, or you can just take away. Uh, <laughs> The combs and if you have neighboring hives, you can shake those bees in front of the entrance and they'll find themselves at home. Then you can freeze the combs and use it in the spring to help with expansion of those now stronger colonies. So three strategies, um, equalizing, emergency feeding and potentially combining are what we would recommend for that. Keeping in mind all that we talked about with queens and you want to make sure that you keep your strongest queens uh, based on the, the criteria that we talked about earlier. So that's a lot of information. Um, hopefully that will be helpful and that can be kept in mind for all seasons, but especially in the fall when you're selecting your strongest colonies. That's it, folks. If you have questions um, on this or other things, just feel free to email me at bemindfulhoneyfarms at gmail.com. I would love to answer some of your questions on the segment and uh, Les Crowder and I will probably do another recorded segment together Uh, so if you have questions for either one or both of us just send them to us we'll be happy to help out in the meantime I hope you guys have a good month and uh, y'all be good and be mindful thank you guys bye You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.